0: this point we have spent uh, two sermons on each of the ten commandments. We have three commandments left to go, the eighth, ninth, and tenth. And so for these final three, my goal is to try and contain our study to one sermon each per commandment, uh, plus discussions on Wednesday nights as we have opportunity. Uh, With the first seven, I tried to take time with each commandment to show how each commandment pointed to our guilt, how each commandment shows how badly we need Jesus. And I tried to use each of the the first seven commandments to show how Jesus came and fulfilled all righteousness for us. For these last three, we could do the same thing, you understand. We could spend time showing how each of the last three commandments points us to the gospel and to Jesus. But I'm going to trust that we know something of our guilt. I'm going to trust that we know something of how we've broken each of these commandments, how each of these condemn us before God, and how Jesus Christ has fulfilled them for us. I'm going to trust that we're resting alone in Him for mercy. And so what we're going to do with these last three commandments is move to the very practical aspects of these commandments. Uh, We're going to be thinking about how to apply the 8th, ninth, and 10 commandments to our lives. Uh, In the mornings, as we're continuing to think through our Reformation series, we'll still be hearing the good news of salvation. These evening services will be more about discipleship, Christian living. How do we now honor the God who has saved us by His grace? We'll unpack each of these last three commandments using two headings. First, what is God setting apart for honor in this commandment? And then, second, what are some practical applications of this commandment for us? So, with that change in mind, look with me at Exodus 20, verse 15. It's only four words in English. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. So here we go. What is God setting apart for honor in this commandment? And the answer is private property. Private property. We are to set apart in our hearts and our minds property that belongs to someone else. And we're to treat it accordingly. Now that may seem strange to you at first. Because up to this point, the things that we've been setting apart for honor were things like God Himself, His holy name, His worship, His day, human life, marriage, and then you hear property. It just doesn't seem as significant, perhaps. doesn't seem as important as as the others. Think about it this way. God has called us, first and foremost, to honor Him. And one of the ways that we honor God is by loving and caring for His creation. That we are to be stewards of the earth that God has made. Uh, Most importantly, we're to respect our fellow human beings created by God in His image. That we're to show our love for God by caring for what is His. Similarly, we show our love and care for our fellow human beings. By caring for what is theirs, we show love to one another by respecting what belongs to one another, just as we show love to God by caring for what is His. So we draw a box around the possessions of others in our minds, and we know that we are not to take what isn't ours, and we are not to treat recklessly the possessions of others. It's not really about the possessions themselves. It's about whose they are. It's about the people that those possessions belong to. This commandment is also about God's sovereign right to entrust the resources of this earth to whom He sees fit as He sees fit. Alistair Begg says, We are not to steal because it offends a holy God It disregards his law, and it devalues our neighbor whose possessions belong to him not by chance, but by God's provision. We show that we respect the sovereignty of God when we keep the Eighth Commandment. Let me make three observations here. Uh, First, the right to private property is rooted in creation. The right to private property is rooted in creation. God created this world in such a way that it is good and right for people to own things. You shall not steal loses all meaning if people don't actually own their possessions. This isn't a right that is first or foremost given to us by our government or in our constitution. This is fundamentally a right given to us by God himself. Uh, It was God who gave the earth to Adam and commanded him to take dominion over it. Dominion means sovereignty. Dominion means authority. Dominion means ownership. Second observation. Social views that deny the right to private property are sinful. Social views that deny the right to private property are sinful. So a few weeks ago, I was talking through the book, The Sign of the Beaver, with a class of students, as I do every year. It's a good book. I like the book. In that book, there is a teenage Native American boy named Addian, and there is a teenage English boy named Matt. Listen to this dialogue between the English boy and the Indian boy. An uncomfortable doubt had long been troubling Matt. Now, before Adian went away, he had to know. This land, he said slowly, this place where my father built his cabin, did it belong to your grandfather? Did he own it once? How one man owned ground, Adian questioned. Well, my father owns it now. He bought it. I not understand, Addie scowled. How can man own land? Land same as air. Land for all people to live on. For beaver and deer. Does deer own land? How could you explain, Matt wondered, to someone who did not want to understand? Yet somewhere in the back of his mind, there was a sudden suspicion that Addian was making sense, and he was not. Now, what's being taught in that novel? It's the idea that land is not to be owned. That land should be communally shared by all. And this is an idea that's not only common in Native American thought, but it was also popular among the European elites of the Enlightenment, So for example, you have Jean-Jacques Rousseau teaching that private property is the root of all evil, that the, the ability of people to own land and claim it for themselves is at the root of almost all conflict and all crime in society, and that if we want to have civilizations that truly accomplish world peace, here's the way to world peace. Do away with private ownership. Take away the right to own private property. Well, as Christians, we have the wisdom of God on that matter. God says, you shall not steal, implying ownership. God has taught us to honor private property. I don't have to tell you, uh, Bernie Sanders garnered a large movement of people, especially young people, in the last presidential election. And even now, he's continuing to lead a renewed interest in socialism in our country. Socialism teaches that the means of production and trade should not be owned by private citizens, but by the community as a whole. Socialism is a vision of shared ownership in which supposedly all people are equal partners and have an equal stake. But of course, in reality, there will always be some people who have to make the decisions while others perform the labor. There will always be people with more authority than others. And so as George Orwell put it in Animal Farm, all people are equal, but some people are more equal than others. Meaning that even in a socialist society, you don't really get equality. You cannot do away with hierarchy. You cannot do away with authority. That's not the way God has made this world. And therefore, this vision of socialism, this vision of shared ownership, ultimately means that those with the highest authority truly own the means of production and trade, and everyone else is at their mercy. The fact is, you cannot move a society towards socialism without taking by force what currently belongs to private citizens and giving new ownership to others. Uh, You can't move to socialism without stealing. You just can't do it. It's highly unlikely that all the private citizens of a land are going to happily relinquish all of their sole ownership rights. Um, Therefore, it is hard for me to see how we can square a movement like socialism with the Christian worldview. So that's second observation. These social views that would do away with private property, I believe they are sinful. They are against the will of God. Third observation. Our ownership of our possessions is not absolute. It is not absolute. And this is really important. At the end of the day, everything in this world belongs to God. God entrusts possessions to us As a matter of stewardship. At the end of the day, we are not so much owners as we are stewards. Skip Ryan puts it really well. He says, in capitalism, the money is yours to do with it what you want. In socialism, it belongs to the state. The state uses it for what the community needs. But in Christianity, it is God's and it is to be used as he directs. The fact is, we will give an account before God for how we use every possession He entrusts to us. If you use your possessions as if they are absolutely your own, and forget your stewardship before God, then you're actually stealing from God Himself. You are taking a right of absolute ownership that is not yours to take. Now, for the rest of the time, I want us to think about our second question. Okay, what are some practical applications of this commandment for us? And I have three headings here. So, first, stealing and property. Second, stealing and people. Third, stealing and God. So, here we go. First, stealing and property. We're going to cruise through these five applications. So, first, most obvious we must not steal possessions. This is the most obvious meaning of this commandment. You are not to steal possessions. I am not to take something that does not belong to me. I remember learning that lesson in a painful way as a child. um, I think I've told you this before. I can't remember. I was around seven years old, maybe six, living up in Northampton County, a little community of Galatia, still a very rural area, but any time we went to Roanoke Rapids, that was a big deal. Today that seems laughable, but as a little kid, Roanoke Rapids was big town, right? That was, that was going to, to the city. Uh, and we did it about once a week for groceries, right? And so on one of our trips to the double R city, that's what we would call it. On one of our trips to Roanoke Rapids, we stopped in a little Christian bookstore uh, that was there downtown area of Roanoke Rapids. And they had these little pinwheels. Uh, that were really that you could stick onto the eraser of a pencil. So we're talking about something maybe this big, a little pinwheel that you could blow on, and it would turn. Uh, when nobody was looking, I took one of them, I liked it, and I put it in my pocket. And I stole from the Christian bookstore. I, I, I walked out uh, of the store with it. So later, as we were walking as a family through the mall, um, a different time, we're going mall now, it's very different. But uh, we were walking through the mall. I pulled that pinwheel out of my pocket and began to, to play with it. My younger sister wanted to know where I got it. And very quickly, my parents were alerted that, uh, to what I had done. I had been caught. Okay? Now, honestly, this little pinwheel thingy probably cost a nickel. Okay? This, this was not something that was very valuable. Many parents probably would have just shrugged the whole thing off. Not my parents'. Uh, they put us back in the car. My dad drove us back to the bookstore, and there, through tears, my dad made me confess to the person manning the, 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 the counter there what I had done, and I had to return it. Uh, my parents reminded me that stealing is a crime, and in my little boy thinking, I was sure the next stop was the police station, and that I was headed to prison, um so I was actually relieved when we got home. Uh and though I often got spankings for for other things I did wrong, this was this was a worse punishment than that. This was the speech. Son, your mother and I are so disappointed in you. And for me that was the worst thing in the world and I remember they set me in the living room in a rocking chair and they did the whole you have to sit here and think about what you've done for the rest of the evening. Um All of that might seem a little bit over the top for something so small and cheap as that little pinwheel, but I'm thankful that my parents took that little childish act of theft so seriously because they used it, they seized that opportunity to teach me a lesson that I would never forget. And that lesson is that stealing is stealing, whether big or small. Stealing is stealing, you know, no matter the value of what you take. In my little boy heart, I knew exactly what I was doing when I walked out of that bookstore with that pinwheel in my pocket. And my heart was just as wicked as a little boy in that act as the heart of many people who have stolen so much more. So, Mount Hermon, we are not to take possessions that do not belong to us, we are to show respect. For the property of others, we're to put a box around it, we are not to take it for our own, and if we are entrusted with it for a time, we are not to treat the possessions of others recklessly. We show our love for them by respecting their property. Second, we must not steal time. We must not steal time. Now, How do we, how do we steal time? Well, by not giving to someone the time that they've paid for. So are you being paid for your time at work? And if so, are your employers getting the time from you that they have paid for? Or could it be that you waste some of that time goofing off or being idle? If someone is paying you for your time, you owe it to them. And we rob our employers or those who hire us for a job if we waste time that they are paying for. Here is one way that Christians ought to stick out in the workplace. We ought to take seriously our obligation to make sure that our employers get their money's worth of our time. Third, we must not steal ideas. We must not steal ideas. That is, we are not to claim for ourselves ideas that truly belong to someone else. Plagiarism has become a growing problem among American students in particular. Uh, Some would say that our culture is now in the midst of a plagiarism crisis. The internet has made it so easy for people to cut and paste the writing of other people and then to submit it as their own. So I found one survey that was way back in 2001, Things certainly have gotten worse since then, but way back in 2001, the survey found that more than half of high school students then had plagiarized writing found on the internet in their papers. Uh, During the last election cycle, we saw political figures getting caught plagiarizing. Uh, Internationally, the president of Nigeria gave a speech with a passage that was lifted verbatim from one given by President Obama some weeks before, and he got caught. The president of Mexico was found to have plagiarized a substantial portion of his thesis in law school. In South Korea, they had a major scandal because it turned out that more than 200 professors from 50 different universities in South Korea were caught working together to put their names on books that they did not write. To help them get teaching positions in the universities. Now, Herman, we need to recognize that love your neighbor means that you do not steal your neighbor's ideas or writings and pass them off as your own. It is unethical, it is a violation of the eighth commandment, and it dishonors the savior that we serve. Number four, we must not use business practices to steal. You must not use business practices to steal. And the Bible has a lot to say about this one. In particular, the scriptures warn us against using unjust weights and measures. It is stealing when we make people believe they are getting something better than we're actually giving them. Do you know that? It is stealing if I convince you that you are getting something for your money that is not actually what you're giving them for their money. Um, Every time a used car salesman convinces a customer that this vehicle is in great shape and worth this amount of money, while secretly he knows that that isn't true, he is working to steal from the customer. And the fact that he's doing it in the name of business does not make it right. Profit margin is not an excuse for wickedness. Repetition is one of the ways that the Bible drives this point home. It is interesting how many times this warning shows up. I'm going to give you just a tiny sampling of of many verses. Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 13, "...you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small." A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Well, listen to these words. These are terrifying words from Amos 8. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. You say, what would cause God to be so angry? Why would God bring an end to Israel? Terrible wailings, dead bodies thrown everywhere. He says it in the next verses. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell our grain, the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. God looked upon his people, and he saw that not only were businessmen stealing through dishonest practices, using false weights, so that people thought they were getting a certain amount of money's worth when they were actually getting less than that, But not only were they doing that, they were doing it towards the poor. They were preying on the poor. The poor were being swindled. They were being taken advantage of by these business practices. And this stirred up God's holy wrath. Mount Herman, I wonder, when you see people swindling the poor through unethical business practices, does it arouse a holy anger in you? Do you care about that the way God does? Do you see it as the evil sin that it is? Solomon made this a regular word of instruction to his son. Just two examples. Proverbs 11.1 A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 20.10 Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike, an abomination to the Lord. Um. Kids, teens, let me say something to you guys. Some of the strongest temptations you will ever face to steal will come in the workplace, will come in a place of business. So resolve now, before you become an employee, before you enter the workforce, that you will live in integrity. Uh, Prepare yourselves now to always tell the truth to be transparent in your dealings, and to never treat a person differently in business than you would want them to treat you. The same golden rule that we heard this morning in our call to confession. I heard a terrible statistic this week. Terrible statistic. Did you know that more money is embezzled out of Christian ministries every year than goes to the cause of world missions every year? More money is embezzled out of Christian ministries each year than actually goes to world missions each year. That ought not to be so. Fifth truth. We must not use positions of power to steal. We must not use positions of power to steal. We often forget what it was like for Christians in past generations and other places to live at the mercy of barons or dukes, or lords. Uh, Back in those days, at any time, the powerful people of the land could use their authority to take whatever they wanted from the people living in their domain. Uh, The same was true for Christian slaves here in America. Their masters could come and take from them whatever they had at any time. And yet the Bible speaks to those in power, time and again, demanding that they not use their power to take the possessions of others. So for example, in Isaiah 5 verse 8, God says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. In other words, this is the person who keeps expanding his property. He keeps expanding his property, seizing the possessions of others, driving them out until he's practically living in the whole land by himself. God pronounces a woe on that person, a curse. God is against those who use their positions of power to seize what belongs to others. The Reformers and the Puritans hit hard on this when they preached on the Eighth Commandment because it was happening all around them. They, they spoke truth to power on this commandment, Luther pointed out the hypocrisy of the rulers in Germany because they would punish a petty thief and send that thief to the gallows while the rulers themselves would just seize acres and acres of land out from underneath others and take it for themselves. Uh, Bullinger, he's this, a Swiss reformer, he said that the petty thief had to spend his days in prison while those who stole property from others were allowed to walk around in purple and in gold attire. Just because you're in a position where you can get away with something doesn't make it right. There will be an ultimate accounting. In Jeremiah 22, God pronounces a curse on those who would build large, elaborate houses for themselves while paying their workers almost nothing. It's stealing because you're Taking luxuries to yourself while denying what is fair and right to those working for you. Mount Hermon, as you have opportunity, always pay people a just wage. Pay people a wage that is right and fair when you're in a position to do so. Don't abuse people. Don't take advantage of them. Jeremiah says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness, and then it was well with him? He judged the cause of the poor and needy, and then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and hearts only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, for practicing oppression and violence. Uh, May such words never be said of us. Let us never be those who take advantage of those underneath our power. So that's stealing and possessions. Let's talk about stealing and people. Stealing and people. Uh, It isn't just possessions, right? Money, land, time that can be stolen. You can steal people, and I'm going to give you four examples of this. First, there is kidnapping, which you might think that's not something that happens often. Why are we talking about kidnapping? Well, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, and he walks through a series of sins. And you can tell what he's doing. He's starting with the fifth commandment and he moves to the ninth commandment and he lists sins. And when he gets to the eighth commandment, this is the sin that Paul mentions, people stealing, kidnapping. And one of the reasons that that was probably foremost in Paul's mind is that in Exodus 21.6, so right after the giving of the 10 commandments, we read this. Whoever steals a man and sells him And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So kidnapping was happening in the ancient world and God's people were to have no part in it. Now this has happened in different ways over the centuries. Uh, One example that shows up among the reformers and the Puritans was that they understood that a young lady was under the care of her father until the day that her father gave her away to a husband. If a young man came along and took the young lady away and married her against her father's will, that was seen to be a form of kidnapping and was seen to be a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Second, and this is happening in our day, human trafficking. Human trafficking. Uh, This is particularly a big deal where we are because we live along the I-95 corridor and human trafficking is happening here. Uh, This is where you take another person against their will and use them for your own monetary gain. Uh, The kind of kidnapping mentioned in Exodus 21 probably refers to a form of human trafficking. It speaks of stealing a person in order to sell them. We are never to use people against their will or seek to manipulate them. and We are never to use them for profits against their will. Uh, The horrendous trade of human trafficking is a vile sin and something that we ought to work to rid our land of. Third, similarly, there is slavery. There is slavery. Deuteronomy 24, 7, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, if he treats him as a slave or sells him, that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Uh, we remember how Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Uh, this is stealing in its most radical form. It's taking a person's freedom away from them, making that person the property of another person. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And then finally, there's stealing a person's heart. Stealing a person's heart. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. This is where you steal a person's ability To make wise and free decisions, blackmail, bribery, uh, manipulation. These are all examples of heart stealing. It can be negative where you use information to pin someone into a corner so that they feel like they have to do whatever you say because you have that information on them. Or it can appear positive. Like when you seduce someone or make them think that you're something you're not in order to get them to do what you want. In all of these situations, you're no longer treating that person as an image bearer of God. You are using them for your own purposes. You're taking away from them a part of what makes them truly human, their ability to make their own decisions. We're not to have any part in any of that. Finally, let's talk about stealing and God, stealing and God. So, how do we steal from God? Well, the first way we've already mentioned, we steal from God when we act as though we have absolute ownership of anything. Everything we have is ultimately His, we are to be stewards of it. To act otherwise is to claim an ownership that is God's alone. But, second, We steal from God when we fail to contribute sacrificially of what He has given to us for His causes and for His kingdom. And so Malachi 3 talks about robbing God. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 8, "'Will man rob God?' "'You are robbing me.' "'But you say, how have we robbed you?' "'In your tithes and contributions.' "'You are cursed with a curse.' For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down down a blessing for you until there is no more need. In that passage, God charges his people with robbery Because they were enjoying wealth, they were enjoying possessions, and his house was not being cared for. In fact, many of the latter prophets speak against Israel because their people made sure that their own houses were well furnished while the house of God was in disarray. Uh, In our context, the call is for us to steward the resources God has given us in such a way that we give generously to his kingdom that we give generously to our local church, and we give generously to the propagation, the spread of the gospel. Uh, We don't have time tonight to tackle the whole question of tithing. Is tithing a New Testament practice? Merle's going to be leading Wednesday night. Y'all should ask him that question on Wednesday night, and I'm interested to hear what he he will say about that. Uh, We can say this, though. Uh, The New Testament expects our giving to God, to be heightened in the New Covenant, not not lessened. Um, It's not we get to the New Testament and suddenly the requirements are less than they were in the Old Testament. Rather, what we see in, in the New Testament is that we are to give from the heart and that we are to give generously and we are to give gladly. In the New Testament, it's less about the amount that you give and more about whether or not it's truly sacrificial giving whether it's generous giving, the kind that shows that God and His purposes really matter to you. If you give thousands and thousands of dollars every month to the church, but you're so wealthy that you don't even notice, you're robbing God. Meanwhile, if you give only $10 a month, But that is real sacrifice for you. You feel that. It might be true of some of our teens, some of our kids. You feel giving $10 a month. Then that is genuine giving. That is showing that the purposes of God matter to you. And you're willing to honor God through sacrifice. So it's less about the amount and more about the heart. Don't rob God by keeping for yourself what love demands we give in sacrifice to Him finally, third, we steal from God when we steal ourselves from his service. When we steal ourselves from his service. So we're going to get to Romans 12, verse 1, very soon, probably December. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's what a Christian is. A person who has given themselves to God. We have laid ourselves down on the altar. We have committed our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our hands, our feet. We've committed all that we are to God. There's an old Cademan's Call song uh, that talks about a Christian who uh, he tries to crawl back off the altar. Back into the fire. In other words, there are times when maybe at baptism, right? At baptism, we, we cross that line and we said, God, all that I am, I'm yours. And then the very next day, what are we trying to do? Well, well maybe not that, God. <laughs> well, God, I don't want to give you that. I want, I want to still make my decisions about that, Father. Um, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Except not this. Not now. Maybe later. We rob ourselves from God when we do not commit all that we are to His will for our lives. When we do not submit ourselves completely to His good will. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He's smarter than we are. He's wiser than we are. We're fools when we try and take back for ourselves that kind of ownership. We rob ourselves from God when we do not attend worship as we ought We rob ourselves from God when we do not serve our brothers and sisters as His hands and feet the way we ought. We rob ourselves from God when we forego what we know God would have us do and we choose to do other things that we like better. And so Mount Hermon, we ought to resolve afresh tonight to give ourselves completely to God. Jesus Christ lived every moment of his life on this earth in the service of God. He was 100% given to God and there has never been a more joyful man that walked this earth. Never. The life of real happiness, the life of real blessedness, the life of real peace is a life lived in total devotion to God. So let us trust Him, let us love Him, And let us give all that we are to him. And let us keep an eye on our lives to make sure that we do not steal. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.